listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. You know how on a lot of podcasts, hosts call their listeners by a particular term? I usually just stick with hey listeners, but on my bike ride in the other morning, I was trying to come up with some other terms, and I didn't get very far. Or I should say, what I came up with was pretty awful. Hey loud grievers, grief out louders, grief getter outers. See, all terrible. So for now, I'm sticking with hey listeners. But if any of you out there have some good suggestions, please send them my way. For this episode, I was able to do another podcast swap. The last time was with Shelby Forsythia of the Coming Back podcast, and this time with Jenny Lisk. Jenny is the host and creator of the Widowed Parent podcast. Sometimes in grief, we like to come up with categories and names for how people respond to loss. Well, from our conversation, it's pretty clear that Jenny turns to doing as one way of processing her grief. After her husband Dennis died of glioblastoma, brain cancer, just over four years ago on January 8th, Jenny went looking for information. She wanted to know how to help her two children, who were 9 and 11, when their dad died. While she found books and articles and websites, she didn't find the comprehensive resource she was looking for. So she decided to create it. From that inspiration, she started the Widowed Parent Podcast. Creating a podcast from scratch is a lot of work, but she didn't stop there. Now she's also writing two books. One is a memoir about her experience of caregiving for her husband during his illness, and the other is the Widowed Parent Handbook, which is informed by what she's learned from her podcast interviews. Jenny and I recorded this episode the day after the fourth anniversary of when her husband died, and we ended up talking about what it was like to go from being in a two-parent household to very suddenly becoming a solo parent, even before Dennis died. There's a quote I recently came across by Sarah Vallely. She writes, What's the protocol for embroidering a story that stops abruptly in the second chapter? And listeners, Jenny is hard at work on creating a protocol for her second chapter, and it's one that so many of us can learn from. Jenny, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today. Yeah, absolutely. I've been looking forward to talking to you. You know, as we get started, it, it's been four years since your husband Dennis died, four years yesterday on the on the 8th of January. How has how you talk about him to your kids and to other people, how has that changed over the last four years? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think, you know, in terms of thinking about how I, how I talk with the kids about it, I'm less afraid to talk about him and about it and about him dying. And I think that early on I was, uh, I don't know, somehow afraid that if I brought him up, that it would somehow upset the delicate balance, you know, or kind of, I don't know, create a problem or, you know, upset people, meaning mm. the kids, you know, I don't know, just kind of afraid to upset that, that delicate balance of maybe things seem like they were okay. And if I talked about it, everybody would be upset again. You know, of course, the more I learn about the the grief world and stuff, the more I learn that, that people say, you know, actually, you can't 
you know, the people, people, if someone didn't forget that their person died, you're not reminding them. Over time, I've realized that it is important to try to find ways to work him into the conversation, whether it's happy memories, whether it's stories, so they learn more about their dad. I mean, they were nine and 11 when he died, which is old enough to remember things, but it's not, you know, really old enough to have tons of. I mean, I, I don't know, just speaking for myself, I don't remember a whole lot from when I was 9 or 11 or before <laughs> that, right? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I think as time goes by, it's important that I help them remember and learn. And, you know, I was thinking about recently, we we went and saw um, the new Star Wars movie. Dennis was a huge Star Wars fan. You know, so it was coming out and I actually remembered ahead of time to, I don't know, weeks in advance to buy tickets. And so as we were getting ready, I... I actually specifically said, you know, in chatting with the kids, guys, this is what we're doing this weekend, you know, going through Sunday, we're going to see Star Wars. And, and I made a point of saying, you know, you know, who loves Star Wars? And, and, you know, of course, they're like, Dad, Dad loves Star Wars. It was a good chance for me to kind of bring up, like I, I reminisced about how when episodes one, two, and three came out, you know, the prequels, it was early 2000s, and we were just, we were living in New York, and it was before the kids were born. So it was a chance to kind of reminisce a little bit, tell them stories of our time in New York and I don't know, help some, help them learn some things they didn't know. And then my son remembered um, that when he was five, you know, on his fifth birthday, that it was a big deal. He got to watch episode four, the original Star Wars for the first time. And so it was a, a positive conversation. And I guess my point is, I think early on, I would have been afraid to uh, maybe bring that up. I would have just thought, it, things seem okay if I bring this up, maybe everything will fall apart. So maybe I won't do that. Yeah, I can imagine. Like, okay, we got to the theater, no meltdowns, we're on time, everybody <laughs> seems happy. I don't want to say anything to upset this balance. Yeah, yeah. And and you know, and in this conversation, it was it was not you know at the theater. It was a couple of days before or whatever. But I was thinking about this. I was thinking, you know, in a situation like that if we're talking about Star Wars, which should be just a happier, neutral conversation, right? We're not talking about grief. Um, we're talking about going to a movie. If I say, dad loves Star Wars, there, I think there's kind of three possible outcomes. And one outcome is that it reminds them, oh, dad's not here and everybody gets upset. One possible outcome is it brings up a chance to you know, tell stories or to, you know, remind them of things or talk to them about their dad's love of Star Wars, which, you know, is a positive outcome. And that is what happened in this case. So that's maybe a second possible outcome. I think the third possible outcome is that maybe one of the kids was thinking about it and worried about it, but not talking about it because they were afraid to upset me. And so, like, if we were going to see Star Wars, and if one of them was thinking, oh, my God, Star Wars, Dad loves Star Wars, and they're sad, or something, I actually, I would want to know that and have a chance to talk about it. And so, by by taking a chance and bringing it up, I, I might uncover that one of them was worried about it. And then that gives us a chance to talk about, you know, connect around their memories or their emotions or their struggles. Yeah, and even in that first one of, like, there's no apparent sadness, my sense is it wouldn't be creating a sadness. It would just be touching into a sadness that exists, but maybe isn't right on the surface in that moment. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Because there's always, I mean, it's not like anybody has, has forgotten. 
Yeah. And then there's always the fourth option, which is, yeah, whatever, mom, we don't want to talk about that right now, (laughs) which can sometimes leave a parent a little bit like, oh, this was a really big thing for me. It's a big memory. It's a really meaningful story. And the kids are like, eh, not today. Although, you know, they say that even if a kid, you know, my kids are teenagers. So even if a teenager reacts like that or, you know, says that on the surface, they're still hearing the message and they're still hearing, you know, mom cares about this and dad likes Star Wars and whatever. So on some level, you know, it's getting received, even if the surface reaction is, yeah, whatever. Totally. Right. To trust that this is this is a beneficial thing, but not to take their reaction personally in any way. Yeah. Yeah. And Dennis died from glioblastoma from brain cancer, which depending on which part of the brain is affected can really alter somebody's physical and cognitive and emotional capacity. How did Dennis change throughout his illness? Well, um, you're right. It was glioblastoma, which I had never even heard that word before, um, you know, he got sick. And of course, now we've heard about it because, well, actually, Bo Biden died of it right before right around the time Dennis got diagnosed. And then since then, of course, John McCain died of it more recently. So it's been talked about a little more in the press. But yeah, you're absolutely right that it it can affect people totally differently. And in his case, it really affected him cognitively, um, which is how I first discovered that there was even a problem. Um, He was saying that he felt a little dizzy, just, you know, minor no big deal kind of stuff. And then I just, I started noticing some occasional cognitive symptoms. Um, so like, for example, when he first told me he felt dizzy, um, we, we talked about it and then I ran out to get some food and I came back and I asked him, how are you feeling? And, and he said, well, I'm feeling okay, but I've been feeling a little dizzy the last few days. Mm. And the way he said it was as if, you know, and I looked at him and I said, well, you know, we, we just talked about that. And he said, we did. Uh, and the reason I, I guess I explained this is that it was these cognitive symptoms that, that were the initial indication of a problem and then only got worse throughout the illness. Um, and actually I remember, well, for the first, I guess it was, I don't know, two weeks, let's say, they were getting kind of progressively worse and that's what got us into the doctor to find out what was going on. And then he had the first surgery. It was a craniotomy. And after that first surgery, he was immediately more confused. And I remember they were going through with him. They have a questionnaire to assess cognitive function. So they're asking questions. And one of them, for example, was like, what is bigger, a horse or a dog? And he's thinking and thinking, and then and I'm listening in, right? And he says, I don't know, maybe a dog? And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, like, what is going on? Like, this is terrible, right? And all the questions were like that, and there was just a disaster. And the surgeons were, would say, you know, well, it might be post-op swelling, you know, it might this might just be a temporary short-term, you know, might go back to normal. And, and I thought, ah, but you know, normal, quote unquote, pre-surgery, not normal, normal in the past, but normal in the couple of weeks leading up to the surgery, he was already showing these major signs of cognitive issues. That just continued to get worse, I would say. But initially, he had still a good long-term memory. 
Um, so he could talk about, you know, things from childhood or remember people from the past or talk about all kinds of things like that. But short-term memory was really compromised. So for example, I remember going into the um, emergency room one time. We were in the ER a bunch of times. So this is an ER doctor, right? A new doctor, not his regular doctor. Says, um, why are you here or something? And, and he says, well, I think I have cancer. And the doctor said, well, where's your cancer? And he said, I don't know, maybe, what did he say? I think he said my liver or my lungs or something that was wrong. And I'm in the background, like waving my hands to the doctor saying, no, 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 you have to ask me. Like, I, I, let me fill you in on what's going on here. Because even though he knew he'd, you know, he'd been in the appointments and the meetings with the different doctors and knew about the diagnosis and knew about the treatments and, you know, those things, he, he didn't remember. So he was able to process and understand and comprehend, but not continue that knowledge forward. Yeah, like while we were in the doctor's office talking to the doctor and the doctor says, um, you know, so they did the biopsy and then we went back a week later and he says, yes, it is malignant, right? At first we only knew that it was a tumor. We didn't know what it was. And then he says, yes, it is malignant. You know, this is bad news. And he understood right then while we were talking about it. But, you know, later, you know, that day, later that day or whatever, he had forgotten it makes me think about like for really young children when someone dies because they don't understand exactly the permanent nature of death. They ask the question over and over again and puts adults and caregivers in that really heartbreaking place of having to share again and again and again what happened. Did that, did that occur for you? Were you in the position of having to explain to your husband over and over what was happening? Uh, yes and no. There were some things I did have to explain over and over to him in, in the beginning. And then I I realized that it it probably wasn't a good idea. But I'm thinking of an example in the beginning where he would say, you know, where's where's the dog? And I point to the dog and I say, there's the dog. And he said, no, where's the other dog? And I'm like, there is no other dog. This is our dog. He's like, no, no, where's the other dog? And I'm like, this is the dog. This is Daisy, right? No, no, no. Where's the other dog? And I'm pulling my hair out and I'm getting super frustrated and this is early on, so I didn't understand as much. And I was feeling like I had to somehow like convince him that this was the dog and that he was wrong if he thought there was another dog. I went. I remember like stepping around the corner where he couldn't see me and like silently going ah to myself, you know, <laughs> right, <laughs> with my hands like clenched and just you know, and then going back in the other room and being like, "This is our dog. Do you want to pet her?" You know. And I, I think in hindsight, he probably was thinking of our previous dog who had died a few years previously. Mm. But because he had that longer term memory, he was thinking of that dog. So ultimately, I realized the symptoms were kind of dementia-like. And eventually, I realized, like, I didn't have to try to convince him that there was no other dog. Like, that was just futile. And there was no, it was kinder to just be like, here's the dog, and then kind of change the topic. But on the question of whether he, you know, having to re-explain about him dying, I... I never hid it from him, but at some point it became like he's been told and there's no point in bringing it up again and again and again and again and again because it's just going to upset him over and over again. Telling him one more time wasn't going to suddenly make the magic of remembering happen. Yeah, it's like it would upset him again for a few more minutes or whatever, and then he'd forget again. It wasn't, you know, it's not like, you know, if somebody's terminally ill and you don't tell them and then 
there's regret that they didn't get to do some bucket list things or they didn't get to have some conversations they wanted or they didn't get to, you know, like something bad happens or, you know, something there's a negative outcome if they don't know. This wasn't that kind of a case. It wasn't like if I reminded him 5 million times, then we were going to go to Hawaii and have a family adventure. <laughs> Or, right. And it wasn't like if I reminded him yet again that then he was going to do some writing or do some something that would ultimately be meaningful. But there was one. So my my friend suggested that I should try to get him to write cards to the kids that I could hold on to. And then they went for their, I don't know, their 16th birthday or their graduation or their wedding day or their something else, you know, different milestone things. Right. And I thought, oh, that just sounds awful. But then I thought, oh, she's probably right. You know, I, I guess I can see how that could be helpful long-term to have for the kids. But then I thought, how am I going to do this? Because he doesn't remember that he's dying. It just sounds awful to, I don't want to like bring it up in order to then have him write these cards. So I was kind of kicking that around in the back of my mind. Like, I don't know, can I make this happen? Can I not? And he called from the hospital. He said something, I forget what he said, but something about being confused. And then he said something like, I guess that's just how I am now. And I thought, um, okay, right now he seems to understand. And I thought, if I'm ever going to talk to him about writing cards to the kids, this is probably my only chance. And I remember I was walking into the lobby of the hospital and the sense of dread i i texted an old friend of mine and i said this is the hardest thing that i will ever have to do in fact i won't say what i exactly said because you probably have a <laughs> g-rated podcast uh, but and i said i'm walking into the hospital to tell my husband that he's dying and he needs to write cards to the kids mm. And I just, I can still, as we're talking, I can remember this overwhelming sense of, of dread. And I was like, but I have to do this. I just, you know, this is my chance. And I went up to his room and I got the sense that he still, he kind of got it. I had these cards and I suggested writing cards to the kids. And he said something about, oh, they're, they're death and dying notes. And I thought, huh well, that's weird. Maybe he does understand right now, right? And so I said, oh, what are those? Kind of gauging, you know? Mm -hmm. And he said, well, it's what you write when you only have a few months to live and you write notes to people that you care about. And I thought, wow, yeah, this is the day. He understands right now. And so so that was our one chance. In the eight months that he was sick, um, our one chance to, we, you know, we talked and cried and just, you know, eventually we said, well, why didn't he start writing these cards? And so he, he started one card to each kid. Of course, at Target, the only set of cards I could find had 100 cards and 100 envelopes. So <laughs> I had 98 <laughs> cards left over. I still have them. Oh, I don't really want to use them, but whatever. He started one card to each kid, and he couldn't figure out what he wanted to write, so he he wanted to finish them later. And I was trying to convince him, can't you just write Love, Dad?, and then you've got more cards. You can write another card if you think of something else to say. But he, he really wanted to finish those. So he put them aside. 
And then by the when I came back the next day for the next day's visit, I mean, it was clear to me that the moment was past. Like hmm. he'd forgotten about the cards. He'd forgotten about his condition, his situation. There was going to be no finishing of those cards. So I kind of quietly gathered them up and, you know, for safekeeping and, and took them home. And early on, I did struggle with trying to convince him of whatever the true situation was. And then I realized that that just wasn't really the kind or beneficial approach. And as you're talking, I keep getting this sense of here you are as a wife and a mother and your husband is dealing with brain cancer. And often you might imagine like that's something that husband and wife would be processing together. But Mm. through so much of this because of his cognitive decline, you had to really process it on your own without him. And this seems like the, it was like a one window into sharing the experience. Yeah, it really, it was that, that was the one, you know, that, I mean, I think I was there for a longer visit, but it was only a small window within that visit that we could kind of share the experience. Cause you're right. It was the rest of the time. It, there was no, let's have, you know, meaningful conversations. Let's talk about all the things that we remember or all the things that we want for the future or any, any of that. It wasn't any of that. And, and then the next piece of that in my mind is there's you processing this news. There's your husband having to process the news basically over and over again. And then you have two young, young children. How did you talk with them or not talk with them about their dad's diagnosis and his prognosis and his illness? That was really hard. And I think one of the things that made it so hard was I, I felt lost of, well, what is the right way to... Like, what, how, how do I do this? Right. How do I, because, well, because I was the only one doing any parenting too. He was in the hospital and when he wasn't in the hospital, he wasn't, he, he wasn't doing any parenting. I was, I was kind of immediately a single parent. Hmm. So uh, it was up to me to talk with the kids about it and figure out what was the right way to talk to them about it. And I mean, cause, cause I guess you wonder as a parent, right. How much do you tell them what's going to be the, in their short-term and long-term best interest. How do you approach this? And I remember that um, the, well, we, we, the kids were in a school community that was really supportive, super helpful the whole time on so many levels. An email had originally gone out to the whole school saying you know, that he had this brain tumor and he was having surgery. A week later when, you know, the diagnosis was coming out that it was cancerous, an email went out to the whole school saying, you know, it's cancerous. And so I remember my friend called me that night and she said, when are you going to tell your kids? And I said, I don't know. And she said, you need to tell them soon. And like now she said, our kids at dinner tonight, she said, we, we told them that his tumor was brain cancer and our kids asked if he was going to die and we didn't want to lie to them. And we told them, that yes, he would. And so she said, you don't want your kids to hear this on the playground tomorrow. She said, I'm sure this same conversation is happening at dinner tables among, you know, everybody in our community, our school community. And she said, they need to hear it from you tonight. And I realized that she was right. I think that kind of set pattern for me that I would that I would be honest with them. That combined with another friend of mine's husband had died a few years earlier, and she had told me that they had gotten the advice to always 
be honest with the kids as to what was happening. And, you know, she had told her kids if, you know, if we have a doctor's appointment, we'll go to the appointment and then we'll come back and we will update you. You'll always be the first to know. And so I thought, okay, I need to do this. So I remember sitting down with the kids and I put both of them on my lap, which, I mean, they were, well, they were eight and 10 at the time, which was pretty big to be sitting on my lap, but <laughs> you know, it seemed like the way to do it. Right. Like, I mean, <laughs> this is, this is a lap sitting situation. Everybody. Yeah, exactly. And so I told them that, you know, we met with the doctor today and he said that it is cancer. And my daughter said, will he live to see me graduate? And, you know, she was eight. So that's like 10 years out at that point. And I said, well, no, he, he won't. And she said, will he live until Christmas? And this was May. Will he live until Christmas? And I said, I don't know. I sure hope so. I love that those were the first two markers that came into her mind. Yeah. It's like yeah. one is so far in the future and then one is so much more immediate. Yeah. And, you know, as it turned out, so he did live to Christmas, but he only lived until the 8th of January, which is like two weeks after Christmas. So this this is where it gets kind of interesting because I, I have actually been reflecting on this lately because I'm writing a memoir using my CaringBridge journal from the time he was sick. And CaringBridge is like an online journal to keep people updated on what's happening with the medical situation. Exactly. And I originally didn't want to start a CaringBridge journal. I just kind of thought, you know, well, I'll just text some people some updates or email some people some updates and that'll be good enough. And it pretty quickly became became obvious that wasn't going to work. There were a tremendous number of people who, who cared about us and who wanted to, you know, be updated, including, like I mentioned, the whole school community was in the loop, which was wonderful. But you would have spent your whole day texting. So yeah. CaringBridge is a much more efficient way to let everybody know what's happening. Yeah, I needed an efficient way to keep people up to date. And it was also important to me to be the one to share the updates. So one of the things that I've been been thinking about as I read back through and reflect, I think that I am happy with the advice that I got to be honest with the kids. And I feel like I stuck to that pretty well when it came to the kind of the facts of the situation you know what is the doctor saying what is the news why is the ambulance coming this morning because he broke his rib in the shower you know keeping them updated on that kind of stuff i think went well what i wish that i had done differently was dealing with some of the emotional things with as we went through with them i mean of course if you know as we went along if they were upset about something we talked about it but i I wish I had done a better job of kind of checking in with them on how they're doing emotionally. I think I was so relieved that they kind of sort of seemed okay. Mm. And I was dealing with so many things with the doctors and the ER and the medicines and, you know, all these things, you know, plus it's hard to, you know, I, again, like if I said to the kids, you know, how are you doing with this? And then maybe dreading that then they would be sad and I'd have to deal with something uncomfortable. I wish in hindsight, that I had dealt more with that as we went along. I think it would have been better for all of us, you know, in the long run, if they'd had more chance to kind of share some more grief as we went along. I think they were seemed to be doing remarkably, I mean, well isn't the right word, but, you know, on a surface level kind of. 
but they were old enough that they underneath I think were processing and maybe not bringing up what they were thinking about and I think that was so this is one of the things I'm reflecting on in the you know in the in the memoir is how would I have done some of those things differently you know knowing what I know now right and that's always so interesting to think about because you're reflecting on a time from a perspective of now where you might have more access to emotional wherewithal more time more brain capacity and reflecting back on a time when you were stretched totally to the max and yeah. thinking about like, how do I add in more things on top of everything else I was trying to manage? Yeah, that's totally true. And it's not like I beat myself up about it. I mean, I was doing the best that I could with the information that I had. Yeah, and it makes me, again, so grateful for the programs out in the in the country that are working with families when someone does have an advanced serious illness. I mean, for years, Dougie Center's groups were just for kids after someone had died. And then five years ago, we were able to implement a program for kids who are very much in your family situation where you might have a group for yourself and your kids could go to group and have a chance to talk to other kids who are in that same place and do some of that processing. So it's not all just on the caregiver to manage all of it. Yeah. And speaking of doing a lot, you're writing one memoir based on your Caring Bridge site, and then you're working on another book too. Tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah. The second book is called The Widowed Parent Handbook. Well, actually, my podcast is research into the handbook. You know, when I first became a widowed parent, I went, you know, I went to Amazon typing in like, where's the book that's going to tell me how to how to do this? Right. And I'm like, ah, there's no book. Uh, and, you know, it, there are different people working on different pieces of the puzzle. You guys, for example, are doing tons of great children's grief work. Uh, I'm not in Portland, so I you know, wouldn't be involved in your organization. Um, but there's other organizations in other cities and there's other people who've written books on different pieces and all this, but I was kind of looking for the, where's the one-stop shopping? Where's my manual? Yeah. The landscape, like what needs to be on my radar screen? What do I need to know? What do I need to do? So I realized I could go out and start talking to people and sharing what I was learning in a podcast. And then that the podcast research could ultimately end up organized into book fashion, if you will. So the the podcast week to week is you know, a different topic each week, a different guest each week. I've done about 50 interviews now that I've got a lot of great content for it, but I'm trying to do the outline now so I can figure out what gaps I still have so that I can then go and do some additional interviews and figure out, you know, what else needs to go to go into there. It's going to be such a tremendous addition to the books and other resources that are out there so that when there's another parent or another caregiver who hits the Google search bar, I'm really looking forward to the day that your handbook and your memoir is going to show up for them. Well, thank you. Actually, I just sent a question to my listeners this week. You know, I'm working on this outline. Tell me, what would you expect to see in a book like this? One or two things. Somebody might come up with something that I'm not thinking of, and I want to make sure that, you know, that I'm covering the bases and can come up with something that is really useful and can be a good starting point. And I mean, as you know, it's a little tricky because it's not like there's one way to do this right. It's not like I can say, here is the formula, here is the answer. Right. Like this is not going to be an Ikea furniture making direction manual. Like a, then B, then C. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, that's a really good analogy. I, uh, that's a better one. I was thinking of it like a recipe. Like if you're going to make Toll House cookies, there is one way to make Toll House cookies. 
Now, you could make other cookies with other variations, but if you're making Toll House cookies, but I like the Ikea thing better. And especially since usually what it looks like is a bunch of mismatched screws and pieces <laughs> on the floor yeah, right. and somebody pulling out their hair, which yeah. that sounds pretty similar to grief. Yeah. And the thing is, though, even though there's not one answer or one approach or one way, I think it's valuable to understand the landscape and to understand maybe some of the key principles to keep in mind or maybe some examples of what some people have done so that each person then can think about, is this something that might help me or not? Is that something that might help me or not? Does this situation apply? Like, like the principle of being honest with your kids. You know, one of the things I've learned is that some people may be tempted to protect the kids by, for example, if they've died of something like a suicide or a drug overdose, maybe telling them it was a heart attack because they think it's going to protect them. What I've learned in, in you know, talking with people and reading and stuff is that actually that causes more problems. Eventually they will figure it out or they'll learn or they'll hear or whatever. And then... And you've got a lot of cleanup to do around yeah. that. Then. And you set up a trust issue, right? Where they really need to be able to survive, trust that surviving parent. And if the surviving parent has lied to them about something so fundamental, that is going to cause a big problem in the long term. And so some of those kind of principles like that, I think, to be thinking about um, are things that I want to you know, make sure I include as well. I love the idea that it's more, rather than a specific recipe, it's like a buffet of multiple yeah. recipes that you might choose from. And and so listeners, keep an eye out for this book, keep an eye out for the memoir. But in the meantime, if you want to connect more with Jenny, the best thing to do is to listen to her Widowed Parent podcast, which is amazing. So many interviews, not only with other grieving parents and caregivers, but professionals in the bereavement world. So getting to connect with people's narratives, but also getting some of that really concrete, tangible, what do I do in this moment information. Uh, Jenny, are there other ways that people can connect with you? Um, well, so uh, for my website, widowedparentpodcast.com, we'll take you right there, and also jennylisk.com. And on social media, I'm at liskjenny, so it's L-I-S-K-J-E-N-N-Y, and so that's on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and LinkedIn. Also, I have at jennylisk.com slash top 10, there's a guide that you can download. It's what I've learned about widowed parenting, so I've reflected on some of the key things that I've learned from my guests over this first set of interviews that people can uh, download. Great. Well, listeners, again, as I always let you know, I'll put all that in the show notes. So you don't have to be scrambling to write it all down. <laughs> also stay tuned because in next week, I'll be recording on the other end of the microphone with uh, on Jenny's podcast with Dougie Center's executive director, Brennan Wood. So we're really looking forward to that interview. And, and Jenny, thank you so much for joining me today for sharing about your husband and your experience and about all the great work that you're doing. Well, thank you. And thanks for having me on. And I'm very much looking forward to talking to both of you next week and uh, having you on my show too. So uh, yeah, looking forward to it. Great. So listeners, stay tuned. And thanks as always for being part of our audience out there. I've really enjoyed hearing from those of you who have reached out to email me with what the show means to you, what episodes have been helpful, what topics are on your mind that you really want us to be talking about on Grief Out Loud. So please keep emailing us at help at Dougie.org. And we are produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families. We're a nonprofit and we're 100% community funded. So if you find yourself drawn to supporting the show, super easy to do online. It's just dougy.org forward slash grief out loud large blue button says donate now 
So thanks for listening and hope you can join us again next time.